262 fucking episodes, Barry Rose, of Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry. Mr. Rose, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jeff. And I, I want to say, uh, and I say this too. So as everybody knows, not everybody, but you know, it's not, a, I, I had COVID in June and I got to tell you, uh, I had a second bout of COVID, which came like two weeks later. Uh, or was it continue? I don't know. It, I have no idea, but I really felt like shit. And the last two to three weeks, I'm feeling like my old self, which really should have everyone scared for loots. When we were down in Florida last time, I was not myself. I didn't really hang out. I spent a lot of time either sitting or sleeping. I am coming to party. So for those in loots and Jeff, you'll be bringing the lovely, the sainted Mrs. Bowdrin. Yes. I am, uh, on the cusp of Linda booking her ticket. I will be driving down with us. Oh, you're making her pay for a ticket or is that a Penzer? She, <laughs> no, Penzer's man. <laughs> well, there you go. There's a fodder for a conversation. <laughs> yeah, it does. Penzer is making her buy a ticket for the van, man. That's correct. No, she's buying a plane ticket because, uh, she's not going to be making the drive, not having the time off. Like I'll be able to do, but, uh, yeah. Well, when, you know, you'll be busy with stuff at the hotel and all that. So when she does arrive, I'm sure that, uh, you know, maybe Neely or Benji or, or Dave Flaherty can give her a ride from the airport. So I got a funny message and I'm going to give him a shout out. Michael Herrick and I were uh, messaging during the recording of this latest episode. How dare you interrupt our recording, and, Michael Herrick? And Michael and I were basically, Jeff, you'll have no idea what this is about. We were gushing over the salad dressing on the 1905 salad at the Columbia restaurant, which I think you did taste, though, didn't you? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Cause I'm, wasn't there, didn't you taste a salad somewhere? Uh, yeah, I, I've had salad in my life. I did not try it at Columbia. Okay. Restaurant. All right. So we were talking about the salad dressing. It's loaded with garlic. It's great. And, uh, I was getting ready to take a bite of a piece of pizza next to me. And Michael goes, garlic reduces swelling, doesn't it? Maybe we can get it for Dave Flaherty's feet. I got to tell you, I put the pizza to the side. <laughs> I cursed Michael. Your, your pizza, I, your, your pizza reminded you of Dave Flaherty's feet. That's not a good thing. So. No, well, I couldn't eat anything when, when I was reminded of Dave Flaherty's feet. So, uh, yeah, so that was a little scary, but, uh, I, I'm also hopeful, Jeff, as we're talking, I'm going to have big news on a Friday night event on next week's episode, possibly even sooner. And I think we uh, we tease that during a certain segment of the show. Yes, I, I will ask you uh, before we continue. Uh, All right. Any update on uh, whether or not there will be a uh, a brothership sighting at the uh, the Sean Davis promotion uh, there that we went to last time? There will be. However, that is tied into the Friday oh, night event, so which is. Okay. So let me say there's there are. And if I give away the third, it's booze brawls and something okay so the booze it's going to be one ticket you know what i should fucking just do that. you want to do this right now you fuck it fuck Say it fuck it we'll do this live <laughs> you ever heard that bill o'reilly thing when he gets he freaks out and he goes fuck it we'll do it live who's in charge of this fucking the thing first time we ever had a bill o'reilly uh and hopefully the last time but he no, uh no, you know actually what you should say instead of fuck it you should say you know sometimes you just need to say the fuck the fuck, Joel? What the fuck? So, anyways, we're well, <laughs> business doctor. I know you love. Well, let me give food. you. Let me tell you what this is. Before we talk about this, for those that'll be in Tampa, 
And if you have any extra time, there is a barbecue place called Four Rivers Smokehouse. And this is a legendary throughout, I think it's Tampa and Orlando, maybe throughout the state of Florida, and they've grown. But I want to say they started in Tampa. They are doing something called the Twisted Pig Pretzel. And it is a giant soft pretzel covered with pulled pork, sausage, cheese, mustard, jalapenos, coleslaw, and some other shit. And it's only 10 bucks. And I've seen photos of this. My mouth is watering on this, Jeff. Let's talk. Let's get back to what booze, brawls, and bad street. Let's go ahead, Jeff. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so I just gave it away. So let's talk about the booze. This event will feature an open bar with unlimited alcohol. Oh, uh, wait a minute. I, hold on. That sound you hear is people now running to loot. So I'm not going to mention any names. Yes. So, uh, and, and I'll, I'll fully go through this. So, uh, booze, brawls and bad street open bar. So this one ticket will get you a full open bar that will go as long as you want it to. So this is not a question of eat, eat it, drink as much as you can in 60 minutes. You got it. You got a few hours here to get hammered. The brawls, this will be the Sean Davis promotion. They are Jeff going to put on specifically for our group, a bunkhouse brawl. So if you've never seen a bunkhouse brawl, it's essentially come as you are. Almost everybody wears jeans and cowboy boots. You're going to get juice. At least I'm praying we're going to get juice in this. You got some, you got, you got a, got a belt buckle there with a big uh, buckle uh, that will perhaps be used to affect. Absolutely. And considering that having been in the venue, you are literally a foot away from the ring, I would assume that's going to be crazy in Bad Street. Booze, ball, brawls in Bad Street. So what does that mean? means Jimmy Garvin is going to be a part of this. So for one ticket, you will get a unlimited open bar that will go several hours. You will get a ticket to this bunkhouse brawl. And then at the conclusion of this event, Jimmy Garvin is going to do a 75-minute Q&A in the ring only for the brothership. So this is not something that is being farmed out to uh, other attendees of the show. This is only for the brothership. This is a very special deal. Jimmy Garvin, we never thought we'd be able to get him. It all worked out, but uh, we don't know if he'll ever be back to Tampa for another fan fest. We decided to do the Q&A in the ring at the end of this event. So when this event ends, and I'm talking about the bunkhouse brawl and, and that whole show, that ends around 9 o'clock. Jimmy will, will step in the ring. He'll talk. He'll tell stories and share cocktails with everyone. I am guessing that approximately 3 a.m., there will be somebody who will take an Uber from the hotel back to the site and want to know why the, the bar is not opened anymore. Can I give you the even best part of this, yes. it will start at the event when the Q&A is taking place. So I should say I don't know if the open bar is going to be during the actual wrestling. It'll start during Jimmy's Q&A and then continue back at the hotel. Oh, my. So that being said, here on episode 262, besides that breaking news that we just we are going back. Oh, Barry. 48 years ago, wow. we are going to the rings 
And I know Barry Rose right now is getting a little bit of wood if he if he still can. Uh, we're going to the rings of championship wrestling from Florida. Yes, CWF in Tampa as Jack and Jerry Briscoe are taking on. Ooh, how's this for a great heel team? Bill Watts and Harley Race. Boom, right there. We're going to be talking about that match. We are going to be doing a little Florida or not. We're going to be talking about people that are being booked incorrectly by AEW. And just for a little tease, I'm going to say, you know, Barry, right in the middle of the Major League Baseball playoffs, sweet Lou Kippelman, Uncle Lou will be joining us with his thoughts about the opening round of the baseball playoffs. I'm sure some people at this point, but I'm mentioning the names, fans of the Mets, of the Blue Jays, of the Rays, of the Cardinals. This particular segment, you might want to turn the volume down. I'm just going to say that. So, Barry, are you ready to start this episode, my friend? It sounds like a lot of fun, Jeff. Yeah, we got a lot going on. Let's go to our match of the week. So, Barry, it's time once again for us to talk about our match of the week. Special surprise for the listeners here oh. as we are going to skip the 80s top 100 for this week because here I uh, came across from uh, October 8th, 1974. Four, Barry. Yep. But Lord, we're talking close to, uh, it's getting on 50 years ago. As Jack and Jerry Briscoe taking on Bill Watts and Harley Race. And we get almost 10 minutes of a, of this match from, uh, from the arena. I, I don't know. Could you tell based on what you saw, Barry, where this match took place? Yeah, it was Tampa. It was Tampa. Okay. Yeah. And it's very rare that you have this many uh minutes of highlights usually it's like a three four minute clip this is uh i think almost nine minutes so uh lots of stuff going on there barry tell the folks what you thought of this match between four absolute legends of the business yeah so this was from 1974 as you mentioned and this was during the period where bill watts was literally the number one heel in the state as well as the booker and you and i have been critical. I think we discussed this on a recent episode about bookers putting themselves in the main event. Got to say, Bill Watts was the exception. He was a very believable heel, top heel, and was, uh, in my opinion, he was completely justified in putting himself up top. He was Bill Watts. And this is, uh, something that was acknowledged by Eddie Graham many years ago. And I, I heard this third hand, maybe even eighth hand by the time this story had been passed down to me, but Eddie Graham considered Bill Watts's tenure as a booker and essentially running, running the promotion, the most successful in CWF history. And what's interesting about that is that Eddie, uh, obviously CWF went through a lot of successful periods and Eddie was there during what was the growth period when Florida was drawing, but not drawing great, you know, and none of the buildings had air conditioning and wrestling at one point was even seasonal in the state of Florida. And they would take off summers because as you know, you're in a building and it's 95 degrees out. That building well, was here like 130. It was in, in AWA, uh, during the sixties and seventies absolutely was seasonal. So I did not realize that about Florida though. 
Yeah, and you're right. In AWA, for the complete opposite, is that their winters, you know, that you're going to try to drive from Minneapolis to the, you know, Wyoming or some shit, like in February, right? You're not making that. So AWA was seasonal in it for a different reason. In Florida, it it was it was uh, it was mostly the 40s and 50s. I think by the 60s that was over. But you know, again, you go. And you look at, uh, I remember there was a period in Miami Beach, and I think Tampa probably even hotter, maybe not, but period in, in Miami Beach, in North Miami Beach in 1987, and we, we had something like 30 or 40 straight days of temperatures in the 90s. Add the fact that there's no breeze. Imagine what a building felt like, especially in people smoking in the building. The proliferation of underarm deodorant really hadn't taken off yet. What a fucking shit show that would have been, huh? So uh, it, it, it would be like the uh, the CWF Legends Fan Fest in Lutz, Florida, in that regard. Which, uh, by the way, Barry, when is that? Oh yeah, that's nice. That's a nice segue. That's coming up <laughs> November the fifth. What a what an extravaganza we've got going on here. This is headlined by a two hour Q and A with Magnum TA Terry Allen. Catered dinner, two-hour Q&A. You've got Jody Malenko hosting a one-hour event in the morning called Growing Up Malenko. Bill Apter's doing the after party. Gorgeous Jimmy Garvin will be making his CWF Legends debut as well. But getting back to this this match and the history behind it, this was the period of uh, when Harley Race had won the world title about a year earlier. He lost it to Jack Briscoe, won it in uh, Kansas City, I believe, lost it to Jack Briscoe in Houston. And uh, this was when Harley basically came down with the billing as former NWA World's Heavyweight Champion, was only here for a couple of weeks, though. Harley, interesting, Harley's history in Florida runs really deep, and that's 1975 and above. So he was, I don't think Harley ever wrestled here until he won the world title in 73. He did one match in Miami Beach against Ron Fuller. I don't, I forget who he wrestled the rest of the state. Then he made this special appearance and this was done. I think Bill Watts underneath the guys that, and Bill Watts really did bring him in actually. So maybe that's a shoot, but Bill Watts brought him in. Because Harley was uh, upset with Jack Briscoe for obviously winning the world's title. So he wasn't happy about that. Watts had also had a falling out with Jerry Briscoe. And they had some issues. And I think that was Cowboys versus Indians. Both from Oklahoma. One Native American, one a Cowboy. That was the angle that was uh, And also, let's, let's not forget, one Oklahoma, one Oklahoma State. Yeah, and that's a, that's a big thing right there, obviously. So th- there, there was a lot around this match. This was the main event of the card that night, and it is a good match. And, th- and then we'll talk about this footage. So this is raw footage shot by uh, – probably shot by Greg Soley or one of Gordon's sons. They were the cameramen as well. They shot the footage. Then this footage would have been taken, probably whittled down to three minutes and then Gordon would do the commentating over and probably did make it to television. This is the full unedited, but the edit cuts are brutal, right? Like, you know, it's, uh, 
Oh no, they're like, very obvious. Oh, it's it's ugly, and and the sound it makes, it's just all about it. With that, there is no commentary, which I often do like on some of these things, and this is really crystal clear footage as well. So, kind of a great look at an, a match taking place in arena as opposed to a television studio, and it's really good, right? It's uh, it's got a really good beginning, middle, and end, and I love the ending. I, the whole story behind it is cool, but the ending is great, and I, I, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but, you know, fuck it, what, it's 48 years old, but watching Jack Briscoe do a drop kick to the back of Bill Watts, pushing him into the corner, to me, was spectacular. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. I, I, I believe I have seen this, but I'm not really sure, but this is just such a good look. A little sad, only two of the guys are alive. Jack Briscoe and Harley Race have both passed on. Stu Schwartz, the referee, has passed on. Bill Watts, apparently not in great shape, you know, and I think it's, uh, it's his, a lot of it has to do with his memory and his mind. I've heard, uh, that he's not doing great. And Jerry Briscoe has issues, I guess, health wise and physically, though I think his mind is good. So, you know, it, it's crazy. And I, I sit here and, uh, you know, I, I live and breathe all things CWF, even at this stage of my life, which is also crazy, actually, in and of itself when you think about it. But, you know, I go back to my favorite year of CWF, which was a year I saw a lot of live wrestling. It was the first year that my dad was like, we're going to go every Wednesday night, you know, and we had been going since 1971. I was seven or eight years old. I think I was seven, almost eight. And I don't remember or, or understand a lot about what was taking place. And I was 11 in 1975. And my dad was like, we're going to do this every week. We'll go out and get dinner and we'll go get some wrestling magazines. And for, as a kid, this was the greatest thing you could ever hear. And then a lot of days I sit back and I go, that's 47 years ago. Like my favorite CWF year is 47. I mean, old as fucking dirt. That's for sure. But you know, it's amazing. I, I could watch, I watched AEW Rampage and Battle of the Belts that were recording on a Monday. I watched that three days ago on a Friday night. And I, I don't remember a single thing about that other than Jade Cargill. Actually, I should say I remember Pac having two pretty good matches, but. I can clearly remember everything 47 years ago with CWF and these four guys in this match are a big reason why. So I, I really enjoyed this footage too. Um, let me ask you a couple things. What was Jack's status? Had he just lost the world title or because as I was watching him team and of course uh, his team with his brother is a legendary tag team. But I was wondering where – I don't think Jack was the, the champion here, was he? He was. So Jack won it in, uh, I believe it was uh, July of 73, if I'm correct, and then lost it in December 75. Okay. So, so he Jack was still the champion. is the world champion, and spoiler alert, as you said, from 48 years ago, Jack loses the fall. Yeah. Uh, well, but you – Jeff, you have been around as long as I have – Old school booking. What does that mean that Jack Jack lost the fall? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, and he loses it. Well, he lost it to the Booker also. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which is kind of interesting, uh, which leads me to a, a couple questions. First of all, and especially since you have the ability at the click of a finger to recite and memorize everything that happened, uh, you saw a little tease of tension between Harley and uh, Bill Watts. 
Was there a turn coming, or was that just part of the storyline? So I love that you brought that up. And, oh, and that thank you. Would, I appreciate that. But the uh, because I noticed it, and it is. Uh, and then I was wondering in my head, was that? Uh, in, and I'm assuming it was intentional because I don't think Harley Race did anything that wasn't intentional. Really, the consummate professional wrestler. He was, you know, he was the guy. And uh, there is a period where I guess Harley's in the ring on his knees and Watts puts his hand out for the tag and Harley just stares at him. Was that what you're referring to also? Well, and the, the very first uh, in the clip, the first time you see Bill demanding that he be tagged. Yeah. Uh, he makes a tag. And then after Harley hits the move on Jack and is apparently going for a pin. You see Bill again demand the tag, which is why, you know, I was sitting there thinking, what, wait a minute, I don't remember Harley Race ever being a baby face or were they going to tease like do a heel versus heel thing? Okay. So that's the first thing. The second question that I had was no, actually it's not a question. Uh, it was about Jack's arm drags. Okay. So when you look and you talk to people about wrestling history and they discuss people that were great doing arm drags. The first name that people usually throw out is Ricky Steamboat. Ricky Steamboat yep. threw a great arm drag. But Ricky Steamboat, I believe, always mentioned Jack Briscoe's arm drags. And if you watch this match, holy shit, are Jack Briscoe's arm drags great in this match? But I will also say the way that Harley Race sells an arm drag in this match is absolutely spectacular and so believable. And Harley Race, at this moment in his career, Let's be honest, when Harley, uh, the early 80s, got that world title back, he had the big hairy mutton chops. He had the beer gut. Here, you got still young, vibrant, looking like every bit the guy that could kick pretty much anybody's ass, Harley Race. He was tremendous in this match, Barry. He was tremendous, too. And this is a good look. And what happened with Harley, too? By the time Harley became world champion in 77 for his second reign, early 77, Harley was putting on weight and he was working a slower, more methodical style. Still methodical, which you can clearly see here. He doesn't fuck up. Like Harley, everything meant something. Everything counted. But when you watch him do the headbutt off the top rope and off the middle rope, there's a definite cringe factor because you know that's exactly what helped destroy his spine, apparently. Really tough. Just to touch on what you were saying, too. So Jack doing the job made a lot of sense because the number one challenger in the state became, drumroll please, Cowboy Bill Watts. So the booker, you know, Bill Watts again, and he credited Eddie Graham with for everything. He said Eddie Graham was the guy and Watts had worked. He had worked up in the, the WWF or triple WF and AWA. And he had been out in California, obviously in Oklahoma with Leroy McGurk for years, but he always credited Eddie Graham. Uh, as being the greatest mind in professional wrestling. And he said, that's where I really learned a lot. But again, to me, it was textbook. You had Harley Race doing all of his spots. Watts, very good. And Watts, somebody brought this up. And I, I, maybe it was you. I, somebody brought it up months ago and basically said, you know, Bill Watts would have been a great choice as NWA world's heavyweight champion. Well, and I, I tell you what, before sure. you go on, because right. I have that in my notes. Oh, <laughs> I get that. Notes. Bill Watts as let, let's just say when this match took place in October of 1974, 
What do you think? Okay, we talk about uh, Jack is essentially two months away from losing this draft. Now, I'd heard conversation. No, so he's a year and two months away. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, uh, out from uh, losing the title. I've heard conversation that when Dory got the title, that Bill Watts was in consideration for the world championship. So at this point in 1974, Bill Watts, obviously, let's be honest, he was a tremendous uh, athlete. He had a great mind for the business. He presented himself as a great bully heel and in the alternative as a great kick-ass baby face. His promos were absolutely off the charts. So what would have kept Bill Watts at this point from being considered a world title, uh, you know, like a, a guy that, uh, you know, the NWA Board of Governors would have considered? Was it A, worried about his ego, or B, uh, was he getting to be a little too old for the role? Why do you think Bill Watts would not have been considered uh, a, a potential future world champion? I, strictly my opinion, of course, I don't well, think. Well, that's he, why I asked for. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think he fit the mold of what the NWA world champion was supposed to be at this stage. Now, with that, and so why don't we look at that? You, Jack Briscoe's your champion. Jack Briscoe is a wrestling champion. He beat, uh, Harley Race who was a wrestling champion as well, but Harley had beaten Dory Funk Jr., who was a wrestler, who had beaten Kaniski, and, and so on. Now, maybe the comparison between Kaniski and Watts is the greatest, because you got two big guys who were ex-football players that were big and were rugged. I don't think Bill Watts, as a wrestler, was what they were looking for. Now, now Bill Watts could do a lot in the ring. So don't, you know, let's not, I think as a professional wrestler, he was probably fantastic, but I mean, as a wrestler on the mat, I don't know if he was what they were looking for. And I could be off. I do think his promos were great. I think the other thing that Watts had going for him was that to be in the old territory days, to be a really successful champion, you had to be able to work as a heel and a babyface. You know, and even a guy like Jack Briscoe, who really was the consummate babyface, he could go to West Texas and he was a full out heel. You know, so I, I don't know where. There's also the aspect that maybe Watts didn't want the title. Maybe Watts was cutting his teeth in Florida. He knew he was going to go back to uh, Oklahoma and take over from McGurk and basically run and own that territory. That could have been a lot more lucrative to Bill Watts than even being the world's heavyweight champion. Well, and that's absolutely true, but let's also be honest. We all know that Bill Watts had an ego. Sure. And would Bill Watts's ego have enjoyed even a brief run as world title, uh, you know, a world champion. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I, an ego, look, ego is a big thing, and Watts is a guy known for having a huge ego. You would think, you would think if you were doing an interim, and even Harley Race just had that title for a few months during his first reign. Tommy Rich was a seven-day champion. Giant Baba had it for just a few days. You know, even Dusty Rhodes that, that first time had it for just a few days. I think Bill Watts would have been. The only thing... I, I don't know if short for the NWA, the, I think the WWE did this all the time, but I don't think short term 
the NWA was about having a short-term heel champion. I think it made more sense for a baby face to take it off of a heel. But I got to tell you, I, you know, look, hindsight's always 2020. There doesn't appear to be a flaw in Watts's game. And I'll tell you, as an interview, nobody talks about Watts. When you hear his commentary on some of these, some of this Florida footage, he's all, he's out of control. He's like fantastic. So believable. And I should say Bill Watts is a guy that I, I've been trying to get down to Lutz for a couple of years until we finally got the word that, uh, there's no more public appearances and there's no travel, uh, for Bill Watts, which really sucks because, you know, if you're, and I'm, I bet you fall right into this, Jeff, top five people you'd want to sit down with and pick their brain. Where's Watts? One, uh, two, or three? I, I would go, I would go like, uh, top three. Yeah. Uh, that I would, uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, absolutely, uh, just disappointing that, that we couldn't do that. So, uh, which begs another question here, uh, looking back with the benefit of hindsight, the short term champion. Now, Baba, of course, owned the stinking promotion. Okay. And it was Japan. So, uh, you know, I guess having a short term, uh, you know, couple weeks of giant Baba sort of made sense, but in hindsight, do you really think that the NWA sort of in a way devalued the belt and what had it meant for all those years by giving Dusty the short-term run with it and then giving Tommy Rich the short-term run with it and things like that? What do you think? Well, what do you say? I mean, do they devalue it? I would say, yeah, and I find that very odd booking to do what's almost a, a such a, a similar angle by two neighboring states that are, you know, that it's also going to receive a lot of coverage in the, uh, the after mags. So yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. I understand why they do it. You know, Dusty Rhodes had been chasing that title for five fucking years at that point, starting in early 76 when Terry Funk had the title. Uh, Tommy Rich was so over and I know people will, but unless you remember what wildfire meant to the people of Georgia and TBS in the late seventies into like maybe 80 or 81, uh, up to 82, you know, Tommy Rich was literally on fire. Like, you just, yeah, you, it, you know, it, people see, uh, you know, you say, well, Tommy Rich was, uh, was he a good idea? Yes or no as the short term world champion. And if someone looks at Tommy Rich now, uh, yeah, I can understand why you think that way. Tommy Rich, as Barry said in that time period was in fuego. Oh my God. Like the reactions that he got. Uh, as the baby face in Georgia was absolutely electric. And I understand why they would have done it. My, my thought again is based on everything that the NWA had built up for themselves. And I, and I get the fact that much Nick was near the, uh, you know, the end of his promoting career. Cable TV was coming in and it made Tommy Rich a much bigger deal than maybe he would have been just as a quote-unquote regional guy in Georgia. But I wonder if taking Dusty Rhodes or Tommy Rich out of it, just doing anyone as a short-term world champion, really lessens the impact of what being the quote-unquote world heavyweight champion, and especially the NWA world heavyweight champion, really meant. What say you? Yes, it did. And it's uh, with that... I mean, it definitely devalued it. And you, you know, you had a guy like, uh, Dory Funk Jr. 
he was four and a half years as world's heavyweight champion. Four and a half years. Lou says, I mean, several runs there, several reigns, but it wasn't, you know, the, and this was the big deal. And we did, we've discussed this at great lengths, but the world title didn't change hands every week or didn't change hands monthly. It changed every few years. So when you're doing two title reigns that only last, you know, a handful of days, it's absolutely going to devalue the title. Now I flip that and I throw this back at you. Did the NWA know that in a sense, yes, it would devalue the title, but with the world being what it was in 81, especially with cable television, and we've heard from Terry Funk. Because Terry Funk was the one who's basically said that uh, the cable television is going to be a game changer. That, you know, it's you can this, this, this and this. It's cable television. The fact that what what cable is providing that a guy in Iowa could watch uh, a station, you know, based out of Florida or somewhere like that. It's going to completely change the landscape of how wrestling operated. Well, he was right about that. So the question that I would flip and ask you. Well, I feel, yes, it did. What was the reason that maybe the NWA was thinking differently? Were they thinking that, okay, let's concentrate on the state of Florida? Dusty wins the title. It'll pop houses. And look, Eddie had the stroke, right? Eddie was a former NWA uh, president. So Eddie would have had the stroke to get that to go through. What was the rationale for doing that? Was it just to pop houses locally? In George's case, because they, TBS was a national or even a worldwide station at that point, does that, does that raise the stock of Tommy Rich? And if so, then why the fuck did Tommy go back to Memphis and not try to go to bigger, bigger territories? You know, I, I think in a lot of ways, I think it was kind of a perfect storm. I, I think you had Cable TV really starting to break nationally. Uh, and when I say break nationally, I mean like all of a sudden cable wasn't even, you know, it wasn't just offered, uh, in Fort Lauderdale, as you said, like, you know, you had a guy in Iowa that could watch it. And, and you know, the really amazing thing is, you know, I have heard that people like in New York City didn't get, and maybe you could answer this question, didn't have cable for the longest time. Uh, and I don't know why that is, but you would think like New York would get cable before Iowa would. But anyway, right. uh, and I think so you had cable TV becoming a very accessible and making stars out of people. You know, would Tommy Rich have gotten over in Iowa uh, or wrestling for Vern Gagne and the AWA? Maybe not. Maybe he was a Southern centric uh, act. I don't know. Well, he was. He was. Uh, Dusty Rhodes. Would Dusty Rhodes have been able to uh, get over uh, nationally? Well, he got over in New York. He was, you know, he's certainly over and he had the ability. Uh, he had that intrinsic whatever it is. He had it. But was Dusty Rhodes such an act that he would get over as a world champion long term? Or was he only a guy that was a, a short term guy? That always needed to have, uh, you know, be the guy chasing the belt as opposed to the guy defending it. And then the other factor that I think really plays into it is, as I mentioned, Muchnick was near the end of his promoting career. And it's not like, even though you had, you know, you had Eddie Graham, you had, uh, you know, uh, Fritz von Eric, uh, you had Jim Crockett Jr. You didn't have one guy that, you know, was, okay, I'm taking the mantle from Sam Muchnick. 
Uh, and I'm going to be the guy that's going to oversee the entire national, national wrestling alliance because let's be honest, every guy was looking out for his own particular area. Fritz was going to make sure that Dallas was taken care of. Eddie was going to make sure that Florida was taken care of and, you know, on and on and on. Uh, whereas Muchnick, uh, had one city. Uh, maybe what you could have done is you could have made Paul Bosch the NWA commissioner because he just had the one city. But of course, you know, as I sit there and say that, I know Paul had issues with, uh, Joe Blanchard at some point in Texas. He had issues with Fritz von Erich. So there really wasn't that one guy that could have grabbed the ball from Muchnick and ran with it. Larry Matizek, I think, wanted to, but I think because of the egos involved with a lot of those guys, I don't think that, you know, maybe they wanted to let Larry Matisek take that ball and run with it. So what do you think of that, Barry? I mean, there was a lot you just threw at me right there, so I've got to try to. Wow, circle. you mean I, I got a, I got a chance to talk? Okay, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I was literally, I'm sitting back and I'm, I'm taking notes, going, okay, Jeff asked this question, then divide by two on this, and I'm doing Steiner math, so I don't know where to start. Let's start off with Sam Munchnik. So Sam, while the promoter of essentially one town, we are looking at was considered the. uh the hub of the NWA. I don't always think the St. Louis cards were the best. I would often, as I looked at the St. Louis cards, especially in later years, you know, Baron Von Raschke near the main event, Blackjack Lanza, etc. I would say Houston and Atlanta often were just as good, if not better than St. Louis. And I think you can look at those cards and see that. I would even say Atlanta. Because some of those Friday night cards were just fantastic. Dusty Rhodes, I believe, could have gotten over anywhere. But yeah, again, history tells us that when the babyface is chasing the title and getting screwed out of the title on a almost weekly basis, people will, will show up in droves to the arenas and not so much if that's reversed. Tommy Rich is interesting and, and, and you, you, look, you raised a great point. Was he too, uh, too Southern? You know, and, and yeah, he was, right? Like Tommy Rich was not a guy that maybe could have played to New York. But again, I question, and I think I know the answer and then I'll, I'll state what I think the answer is. Tommy Rich, after setting TBS on fire, after being a seven-day world champion, but arguably one of the most well-known pro wrestlers in this country, thanks to TBS Cable and After Magazines, who featured a Tommy Rich story in every single issue, he chose, of all places to go back, was, was Memphis. And as a as a business move, it's almost mind-boggling because Memphis was not receiving any national exposure. There, you know, nobody was going to tell you. Look, shit happened in Memphis. You really weren't going to find out about it for a few months until it made the magazines. It wasn't going to appear on TV or anything like that. I don't think Tommy Rich was one of those guys. And let me find the nicest way to phrase this. I don't think he was one of those guys that always thought about his quote unquote future. I think Tommy Rich was a guy that was happy to have a job. He was happy to be featured. He was happy he was making money. We know that Tommy loved to party. We also know that Tommy loved the ladies. So maybe going Atlanta to Georgia was a good thing. In my head, 
why not try to take that fame and why not just come down to Florida? Why not? You know, it's we're not that far from uh, from Georgia. So why not try to be a baby face in Florida? And Tommy did make a couple of shots. I think I think Tommy and I don't I don't think he truly got over with those shots. But again, those were just one offs. It wasn't like he was given a push or a build up. But I think Tommy was really limited in what you saw. It was obviously his charisma that was going to get him over. And I don't think that happened overnight because we know in Georgia he did jobs when he first showed up for a while. Uh, so I think, I think the buildup of Tommy Rich, I, I don't think it was immediate. I, I don't know if he could have left and come to Florida or gone to the Carolinas or even Texas or something like that. I don't think he was tough enough for Watts. I, I somehow don't see him working there, but I, I think Tommy was a guy like, you know what? Memphis is going to pay me. I'm close to my mom. I'm close to Peggy, right? I, I'll be right there. Uh, and I can, I can work with Lance Russell every week. I think that was the draw for Tommy. And, you know, interestingly, at the very beginning of this discussion, we were talking about one of the things that was held against Watts was that he wasn't necessarily a great wrestler. And it's interesting that five or six years later, Tommy Rich is hot enough to where he's thought of like, let's give this guy the strap for a short run because he's that over. Now, whether it was a favor for Barnett or one of the other stories that you hear, they thought enough of the guy to give him the belt. Uh, and Five or six years before, I don't care how hot Tommy Rich was, I don't think anyone would have, you know, okayed him getting the world strap. And the other thing that's interesting is, you know, we, we talked about the way that uh, cable influenced things and uh, who would have gotten over where. You know, the one thing that they always fell back on is, can you wrestle and are you a tough enough guy to, you know, uh, how can I put this? Uh, if their situation goes wrong... Uh, that you can represent the fact that you're a wrestler and a world title holder. You know, Harley Race could do that. Jack Briscoe could do that. You know, other guys that we've mentioned could all take care of themselves. Tommy Rich had a lot of great and strong qualities as a baby face. Okay. I don't know that I've ever heard stories about what a big tough guy Tommy Rich was. You know, if Tommy Rich is in a bar having a few beers, let's be honest. We've all heard stories about Tommy liking to have a few beers. And some guy comes up to him and gets in his face and tells him that he's a big wuss and I don't think you're a tough guy. It, it, I mean, Tommy would have fought the guy, I'm sure. But is Tommy Rich a bad enough ass where he's going to destroy the guy like a Harley Race would have or a Bill Watts or a Terry Funk or a Jack Briscoe? I don't really think so, which makes the decision with the benefit of 40 years of hindsight even more mind boggling that Tommy Rich got the world title because Dusty Rose I'm not even going to say New York. Let's let's talk about that guy who had cable in Iowa. Dusty Rhodes could get over with that guy in Iowa. I don't know that Tommy Rich could have. So, you know, we, we've always uh, – we've gone back over the years and we've talked about, oh, Ted DiBiase should have been the world champion. Uh, you know, and, of course, uh, there was a discussion with DiBiase and Flair who should have got the title. Again, it makes the, the choice to give it to Tommy Rich. I don't care how – you know, Ricky Morton was really hot uh, in 1985 and 1986 for Crockett. Uh, and I'm sure Ricky Morton thought that he probably deserved a run with the uh, world championship. But I don't know. W was Tommy Rich any hotter than Ricky Morton was then? And was Tommy Rich that much more deserving of a world championship than, say, Ricky Morton was? What do you think? 
But you know what? Different world as well, right? Of course, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's part of it. I mean, look, Ricky Morton, in my opinion, I, I would have chosen, and this is not a knock on Ronnie Garvin. Everybody seems to take that shot at Garvin, but I would have put it on Ricky Morton over Ronnie Garvin just because he was a hell of a worker and fans were so into the Rock and Roll Express, especially Morton. And uh you just know he knew how to do it. I don't know. It. Uh, I, I like the comparison of Morton to Rich. Ricky Morton better, but at the right time, I don't think putting it on Tommy Rich was a bad thing locally. And here's the other aspect, which we didn't even talk about. So Dusty Rhodes chasing that world title from uh, literally – January of 1976 till he finally won it, you know, four or five years later, if he doesn't win it, how ineffective and what a putz does he look like, right? You chase the fucking title for four or five years and you can't win it. You can't win it. If you can't win it in four or five years, you're not the guy. Yeah, but, you know, really, though, if that's the way you look at it, then has Fritz Von Erich been devalued in Dallas if he doesn't win the strap because he chased it for years? Uh, you know, you had all the guys in mid-Atlantic that were, you know, uh, guys that were great contenders and really in every area. Does it really devalue, uh, the fact that they couldn't win the title? I mean, that was part of the whole, you know, the heel would come in and he would defeat the local champion, but the, you know, the, the local, local guy would put up a hell of a fight, maybe yeah. take him to a draw, but I, I don't think it destroyed, it didn't destroy Bob Armstrong because he could never win the title, you know? I, I don't know. I don't necessarily agree with that particular part of your argument. Well, I, I, but I will tell you, I think that was part of the reason for, and I, I'll speak to Dusty specifically. That was part of the reason was that the office uh, made a very strong case that we're making, look, he's five years of telling you he's going to win the title and he doesn't. Eventually he's got to win the title. And if not, he does look completely ineffectual with Tommy Rich. I don't know. And I don't think in Tommy Rich's case that he had been chasing the world title even half the same length of time as Dusty Rhodes. But I, I, I understand why they gave it to Dusty down here because if not, those interviews were over. I mean, even, even none of us gave, I didn't give a shit at that point. Dusty would tell you this is the week and he's going to win it, but. Look, we've only heard that 150 times before, right? Why am I supposed to believe you now? So. Well, but, but let me take the counter argument here. If that's the case, and if now Dusty has backed us into a corner where basically we have to support him getting a short-term run with the belt, was it on Eddie then at some point? Not then, but at a time before that to say, hey, Dusty, man, you can't keep saying that because at some point – you're going to have to win the belt, and I don't know whether or not you're going to be in a position to get the approval to win the belt. I, you know, I mean, should Eddie have had that discussion with him? Or Maybe, did Dusty have too much stroke at that point? I think Dusty had a lot of stroke, and I also think that uh, Eddie could have been encouraging him. As we know, Dusty Rhodes, who was not just the most popular babyface in the state of Florida, but maybe the country and certainly top five in the country, Dusty was responsible for the one putting butts in seats. So if Dusty tells you, this is the week I'm winning the title, and we all know the Dusty finish, you know, let them go home thinking one thing and we'll change it, whatever it is, but I I think it was I'm sure it was part dusty, but at the same time Eddie Graham was probably encouraging him to do that because it's yeah. going to translate to ticket sales. So we will post a link to this uh, getting back to this match that we talked about uh, a 
75 minutes ago. I'm just kidding. Uh, the, uh, the Briscoes versus Bill Watson Harley race. Uh, I will post a link to that in our group. It's really a fun watch for absolute legends at the absolute peak of their abilities. Uh, I will say one last thing and then we'll end this segment. I loved seeing something in this match that as I thought about it is something that you don't see anymore from a heel. Barry Rose, did you notice Bill Watts with the thumb to the throat? How come we don't see that move anymore? I don't, you know what? So somebody's doing it. I just read this on the Observer website the other day. It's a Samoan. It's one of the Islanders. And I don't know if it's the guys who are in ROH that were on the uh, Battle of the Belts the other night, Gates of Agony, I think, or something. But MLW's got a few, but I should say, I think every promotion's got their Islanders now. It's called a Tongan Spike. So, but in the old days, Bill Watts was one and Buddy Colt was the other. Ernie Those, Ladd. Ernie Ladd. My God, Ernie, the great Ernie Ladd. Those three taped up that thumb and used that gimmick for years. Perry has been a hot tick since we got to some Florida man or not stories. Are you ready to go? I'm never ready for these stories, Jeff, but I, well, that's, I gotta that's say, pretty true. You guess. Yeah, this, yeah, well, exactly. It's a coin flip. This has become, I, I guess, one of our most popular segments. And who doesn't love a good Florida man story, right? That truly. Well, other than maybe the Florida man that's involved well, in the story. That's a but, good yeah. point. And his family. I could see that. That's true. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, headline reads, Interstate reopens after truck crash covers highway in beer. Well, you know, Flaherty would have been right on top of this. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, the story goes that uh, Interstate is reopened at noon on Wednesday after a crash involving multiple semi-trucks and a pickup left the highway covered with the remains of hundreds of cases of Coors beer. Mm. My God, it, it was the bandit making the run from Texarkana. <laughs> to, you know, so uh, anyway, southbound traffic was diverted uh, via local highways. The crash was the fault of a semi-driver who attempted to overtake another, striking its trailer. Barry Rose, Florida man or not. Hmm. So we got, we got cores, cores coming from the beautiful state of Colorado, if I'm correct. And if I'm correct, do you know anything about beer, Jeff? Uh, like what? I know well, Adolf Coors was the, uh, the original and, you know, uh, yeah, that's a tough first that's... name too. Let's be yeah. honest. Yeah. Your first name is Adolf. You're, that's a bad yeah, you're carrying. A lot of people naming their kid Adolf these no, days. No, no. Know? Yeah, it's got to be tough. It's got to be tough. So cores coming out of – this is what I was going to get to. I uh, I remember hearing this fact, and th- this had changed, but at one time – and I, this was probably when the cores explosion in popularity occurred some 40 years ago, and cores had to be refrigerated when it left Colorado. So they were using refrigerated trucks where a lot of other beer trucks were just delivering essentially warm beer. So interesting, but Coors was always refrigerated. I don't know if that's still the case or not. Colorado, it's it's a national, but it is car accidents in Florida. My God, are they? I'm going to say this is Florida. Brooksville, Florida. Woo! There you go. Got that one right. Uh, I I will say, uh, you know, uh, your refrigerated beer trucks. You know, they don't do that kind of stuff for your, your, your false staff or, or your, uh, you know, your red stripe, uh, your, 
lesser quality of beers. So, so that's uh, a good point about Red Stripe because I believe that's a Jamaican beer. So the drive from, let's say, Jamaica to Georgia. Yeah, that's, that a, that's a tough drive. That's a know. tough drive. That is. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and by the way, you know, we were talking about Adolf being a tough name. Uh, you know, I, was just, I was watching Seinfeld earlier. Uh, Barry, before, when you had, uh, <laughs> I know where you're going. I love it. When that's you had Zach, did yes. you give it thought to naming Zach Jeeves? Well, no, because basically if you name your kid Jeeves, his life you're, is you're, predetermined. You're setting him up for life. Yes, he is. We Have you thought about the name Ned? Ned? Could you? <laughs> when Elaine, it's funny because somebody reached out to me. One of our, one of the brothership reached out to me and, and it was a roaming guy, I forget who it was, in the last couple of weeks and said, have you seen this episode? And I said, I just saw it. And it was the one where Elaine was dating Joel Rifkin. Uh, yes, I think it was Kevin Orcutt, actually. Killer, yes. Yeah, it was David. And, and she's trying to come up with names for him. And he's he's like, Todd? You want to call me Todd? Uh, really funny. It was Kevin Orcutt, actually. And I was like, of course I've seen that episode. A hundred yeah, times, yeah. She's at, she's at the Giants game, and he gets paid. <laughs> Yes. Everyone's looking around. Joel Rifkin. It's, it's, not, Rifkin. it's not the serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, okay, so the next uh, oh. story here, Barry, uh, I will say one of my general rules when people submit the stories, I don't like anything involving, uh, you know, murder or uh, anything. It, nothing humorous about that. But yes, this one is slightly different. Oh, the headline okay. reads, Barry. Funny murder story. Yes, Jeff. Woman found dead inside department store after four days. Mm. The story goes an employee at a department store died inside of a bathroom at the store, but was not found for several days. Apparently cleaning the bathroom in this particular store, not a high priority, Barry. Investigators said that Bessie Durham, 63, was a janitor at the Belk department store. Barry, ever been to a Belk's? I don't think so. I've been okay. to, and I will say I've been to a, a, all those budget department stores. I don't think ever a Belks. Uh, so uh, Durham was found Monday inside a bathroom stall. What a way to go, Barry. She went like Elvis, you know, yeah. on the bathroom stall. Somebody Her, else just went on the, oh, Coolio. Coolio yeah, died yeah. in the bathroom. It was there a tribute go. to the king, yes. Her cleaning cart was found outside the restroom. Uh, Durham's family had not, not talked to her since uh, Thursday, prompting them to file a missing persons report with the police. And uh, they found her inside the bathroom stall. Barry, Florida woman or not? What was the name? It was a Belks? Yes. All right. So the first thing is corporate's got to get involved. If somebody's going into your bathroom to clean it uh, and a woman's been dead for four days in the bathroom, you got a bigger issue than uh, whatever the other issues are. Well, I mean, let, me just, let me just clarify the story here. Uh, Bessie, right. the aforementioned lady, apparently was part of the cleaning staff at the Belks. So this was not a customer going in there and dying. This was a actual uh, a janitor. Okay, so that also begs the question: Does the is the does the cleaning staff consist of one individual? Apparently, uh, (laughs) once again, Barry, as we've stressed so many times, this falls on the manager because this falls absolutely the manager Todd or Ned or whatever. Uh, you know, has to say, you know, I, I haven't seen Bessie for quite a few days. Her cart's outside the woman's room. Ladies, one of you go in there, just check to see if Bessie's in the, one of the stalls. You know, uh, fucking days, Jeff. Yeah, yes. The manager. Uh, not a good, not a good look on the belts, Jane Barrett. No, no. Uh, with that, this could absolutely be the state of Florida, but I have to go with whatever algorithm you're using, Jeff. 
And I'm going to say you are not going all Florida. This is another state. Barry, it is, in fact, the fine capital of the Palmetto State of South Carolina. Columbia! Woo! Moolah! Home of the South, uh, of the South Carolina Gamecocks, by the way. Columbia, yeah. South Carolina. That's so. where Moolah lived, too, right? Uh, Wasn't well, the, there uh, you go. You know, you yeah. were right on top of things. Uh, Barry, next. <laughs> Literally, yes. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Next headline, uh, Barry. Oh, oh, Barry, this is a good one. I uh, have had this one uh, in my back pocket for a while. Fine. You're going to love this headline. Country Club faces backlash after offering a 9-11 themed dinner menu. Oh. <clears throat> A country club is facing online backlash, uh, backlash after the establishment posted a special menu for Patriots Day this coming Sunday. This article is a couple of weeks old. This coming Sunday, which featured entirely 9-11 themed dishes and drinks. Uh, news reported that uh, the restaurant recently shared a menu for, quote, Seafood Sunday, which would be served on September 11th. The restaurant had daily themed menus, and this particular selection featured dishes like First responder flatbread, 9-11 oysters, and flight 93 redirect crab dip. Wow. Barry, I wish I could tell you this was just a, wow. a, a joke. This is absolutely true. The club also planned to offer chocolate silk Pentagon pie for dessert, key lime flavored Remember Teeny, and the Never Forget Sampler featuring a portion of each available dish. Barry Rose, besides being horrified, is this a Florida story or not? I and So, and the scary thing about this, much like we were just discussing, and this is probably a managerial decision. Yeah, you think? Yeah, yeah, but th- this probably wasn't the manager going, this is what we're going to do, and a bunch of people saying, oh, that's a great idea. There were several eyes on this, right? Like there had to be yeah, multiple you know, people saying, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. Even, I got to tell like, you. Uh, you know, Jimmy, the busboy that works part time, had to see this and go, hey, you sure you want to do this? Because this sounds like a horrifying idea. Nobody. And, and did you say this was a country club? This was a country club, Barry. So he probably put this menu out ahead of time, meaning that country club, let's say hypothetically there's 5,000, five, uh, let's say that there's 2,500 members. Everybody saw this menu, so I'm assuming at some point the backlash came. What a whole – I mean, you talk about being completely fucking clueless. This guy, whoever this uh, signed off on this, takes the cake. This did not happen in Florida, Jeff. Uh, this happened in – I mean, it easily could have happened in Florida. I'm going to say I don't know where it happened. It didn't happen in Florida, though. Stafford County, Virginia. I not exactly sure where – you do? I do. Yeah, so when you go up and down, I think Is that where the little uh, gnome-like character uh, Toe Fungus lives in Virginia, that part? Uh, you know what? Not bad. I would say maybe an hour away. I Because th- he's, uh, yeah. Maybe he's anyway. been made a manager. Yeah, maybe, maybe he's the douche in charge of this. Yeah, that could have you know been what? his sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stafford also, Jeff, uh, which is a great point of reference, and not for you because you live down south, but for us up here that are in the northern region of the U.S., Stafford, home to the northernmost publics in the country. I okay. Do yes. So our next headline, Barry, I will be honest with you. I do not know where the location of this, because it does not list a location. However, the story is is just so epic. Uh, I had to share it with you and the listeners the headline, uh, courtesy of our friends at the uh, New York Post, Barry Rose's go-to newspaper Oh yeah, back in the day for uh, Nick's results and storylines. Quote, 
A restaurant shamed my big boobs and made me cover up with a lost and found scarf. A woman who thought she dressed in a, quote, classy, unquote, outfit, allegedly ended up being told to cover up after it violated the dress code at an upscale restaurant. A TikTok user uploaded the seven-second clip showing her face and her hands after reportedly being slapped with a dress code violation by a fancy restaurant. When you get dress coded at an upscale restaurant, she wrote over the video, which showed her wearing a scarf around her shoulders that apparently had been borrowed from the restaurant's lost and found bin. Yes, this scarf belongs to the restaurant. I didn't know these were the vibes. Barry Rose, what do you think? Now, now, of course, Barry, I think we've well established you as a, uh, a figure of fine managerial experience in the restaurant industry. Barry, have you ever shamed a woman who came in with a little too much of the uh, the boobage on display? Oh, I probably did, but I, I didn't do it intentionally. It was probably just my drooling and leering. Yeah. yeah. So so could you ever see a situation where uh, if a lady perhaps was uh, yeah, underdressed that you would say, eh, excuse me, madam, uh, we here at the uh, the Burger uh, County uh, would rather you not, uh, you know, display your fine wares for the viewing public. How do you handle that uh, as a managerial type? Yeah, so it, it would have to be, uh, you're going to like this word too, Jeff, egregious. Oh, my. So it Excellent. would have to be egregious in nature for me to say something. Look, we had people come in where their breasts were falling out, et cetera. And the truth is, it's you, you don't, especially working for a corporate restaurant, you don't always have a lot of recourse. You've got to do everything. you got to be very careful. Unlike a mom and pop where you basically can set your own rules, I throw out a woman whose breasts are maybe peeking out of her blouse a little bit too much. She writes writes a letter to corporate uh, and accuses me of sexism, et cetera, and I might be on the unemployment line. So you do got to be careful. I, I don't think, you know, I think it's very, to me, shirt, shoes, and, uh, and pants, and you're good. You don't have to get dressed up. You know, I, it, and you know, it, it, that's a funny thing too, what she's claiming here, because this is definitely a he said, she said kind of thing. And I'm also like, you know, you're, if you're going to go to a place and you're going to go out to dinner and your breasts are literally being exposed. I mean, you know, we talked about toenail fungus. It's very similar. Just wave your arms up in the air and go, Hey, look at me. Look at me. I'm a defect. Look at me. Right. I don't know. Kind of ridiculous. Uh, Barry, I will just say, in my opinion, as I read the story, I found it to be quite <clears throat> titillating. Oh. You see what I did there? You see what better I did than there? egregious, yes. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> Next story, Barry. Woman who brought raccoon to bar is charged. Barry, the story goes on. A woman who brought a wild raccoon. It's not a tamed raccoon, Barry. It's a wild one. Uh, into a bar, which prompted state health officials to issue a warning about potential rabies exposure, is facing criminal charges. Aaron Christensen, 38, is charged with misdemeanor counts of providing false information to law enforcement, tampering with physical evidence, and I like this one, Barry, unlawful possession of fur bearers. What? I have no <laughs> idea what the hell that is. Uh, you know, do you like a good fur bearer in there? That's I guess. Story. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Barry Rose, Florida woman or not? Uh, it's a tough one right there. And that one doesn't, uh, no clues in that one. We went Florida. We were, uh, South Carolina. We were Virginia. Uh, I am going to say this one is Florida. North Dakota. Oh, I believe this might be our first story ever from North Dakota. So that's, uh, yeah. that's kind of interesting. 
So uh, let's see what else we got here, Barry. Uh, oh, Barry, I know you love a, a story with a good religious theme to it here. Oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Barry Rose. Pastor farts on congregants to heal and cure them. Photo goes viral. Now, Barry, I will tell you uh, right off the top, just to give you a little hint, this is, in fact, not a United States story. It is uh, on another continent uh, that is not Antarctica, by the way. Uh, a pastor has created social media buzz for his unconventional ways of healing his followers. Okay. Uh, it says here uh, he is known for farting on congregants as a means of healing and blessing them. Photos of him sitting on people's faces uh, you ever done that for Barry, or is it the other way around? Uh, <clears throat> sorry, uh, is doing rounds on social media with people claiming his fart. He farts on them. I don't fart on people. I heal people. He said, Barry Rose. It's just a. Uh, <laughs> it's not a Florida answer. Uh, what country do you think this might take place in? I, and I like this guy. So, would you be I, in favor of someone farting on you if you need? No, no, no. But I like the farting on someone else thing. I oh, okay, actually, I'm in go. favor of. I think that's okay. So there was a story out years ago, and it and so my answer is going to be Africa. But then I'll tell you how I came up with that conclusion. There was a story out of Africa. I don't know where in Africa either. And I realize that's a gigantic country or right? continent or continent exactly. Or is it both actually? Is Africa? No, well, I guess no, it's, it's not. It's, it's, a yeah, it's a continent. Thank you. Yeah, because the countries geography are right. apparently not a specialty of yours in high school. Same as math, my friend. No, not. Uh, yeah. But yes, this guy was like flinging poo or something at people. So I'm going to say that this is the continent of Africa. Now, if you're asking me the country, that's going to be very difficult. So that I wouldn't be able to come up with. But I'll say this is Africa somewhere. From the sevenfold Holy Spirit ministries in Guiani, Limpopo, South Africa, Barry. Yes. Oh, you were close. Yes. Yes. But, uh, you, you did not come up with South Africa, so I, I'm afraid I can't give you full credit on that. Damn it. So, and Barry, let's see here. Right before we came on the air, I got this from our, our friend, Mr. Food, Bruce Cohen. Huh? So th this is the kind of stuff, by the way, when you hear this story, this is the kind of stuff Bruce Cohen's going out there searching for. A little bit on the sketchy side. The headline reads, again from our friends at the New York Post, high school golf team cancels practice after encountering strip clubs tournament on the course. These The story goes, these kids came for iron clubs, not strip clubs. A high school golf team was forced to cancel practice after students ran into, quote, lewd, unquote, strippers playing in a tournament sponsored by, I love this term, their jiggle joint. <laughs> uh, this, this, this story has Howard Baum all over it. According to the school district, things went off course on Monday when golfers spotted dancers from the strip club hitting balls in their skivvies. My, my dad oh. used to call underwear that skivvies. skivvies. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, anyway, uh, Barry Rose, Florida, Florida high school or not? Skivvies. By the way, have you ever heard of underwear described as skivvies, Barry? Not in a while. Not in a uh, while. It's like a, I want to say it's a military term because we're dad spending uh, over 20 years in the Navy. And I think that's uh, where he picked up the term skivvies. That's, and that's, yeah, I think you're, yeah. Uh, I am going to say that this one was Florida. Austin, Texas. Uh, you uh, lose on that I one, did. Mr. Yeah. Rose. Barry, coming across this article, courtesy of the Sportster website. Barry, are you ready for a little AEW discussion? Oh, absolutely. The article titled, Top 10 
AEW wrestlers Tony Khan has trouble booking. How dare someone give opinions on booking here, Barry? Uh-huh. So we begin with number 10. We're going to go back from 10 to 1. Barry Rose, I think you will find some of these choices interesting, and you can tell me agree or disagree and then explain why. Number 10, Ethan Page. Yeah, so Ethan Page, this is what I got. And I got this uh when he first joined the company. He has been all over the board, and they – clearly don't know what to do with him. When he first came in, they didn't know Then they put him with Dan Lambert. Uh, and now they've got him with Stokely Hathaway and he's still in that limbo kind of, you know, it's like he gives a, a great promo and talks about how he's been overlooked. And then we don't see him for a couple of weeks again. So it, it's kind of like he's saying, yeah, they AEW doesn't know how to book me, which he basically has come out and said. And at the same time, nothing ever comes of that. So it just continues uh, with that. I would agree. I, there was heat on Ethan Page when he first joined the company. And a lot of it had to do with his departure from Impact. And I, the intel that I got, uh, he was not well-liked at Impact based off of, I guess, he has an attitude. And the other aspect was the way that he handled his departure. They were not happy about that. I believe Brandy Rhodes on television even said, and this is when she was, she had her one promo against uh, Dan Lambert and uh, Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page. And she said something to the effect of, we only signed you because we're trying to get to Josh Alexander. And Josh Alexander's is, to me, is tremendous. He's money waiting to be made. He's just an impact. So that's not, you know, you're only going to go so far. Ethan Page needs to go away for three months, be repackaged and come back. That's what, that's how I would solve that. Uh, well, they, I, I thought that's what they did early. <laughs> like, they, they've months. done it, I think, two or three times, yes. Uh, you know, here's the problem the is thing. it's just not working because they're not here's, fucking sticking with it. Here's the thing that I really wish they would uh, come to realize. Not every guy needs to be in a faction. Yep. You know, Tony Khan apparently loves factions. Maybe he grew up watching them and every, you know, whether it was the uh, Horsemen or the NWO or, or whatever. Not every guy has to be in a freaking faction. Let some guys just be on their own, you know? And that's kind of something that worries me about MJF is now they have him sort of, he has this little group that uh, sort of do his bidding. No, MJF is fine by himself. Let him be by himself and, you know, let other guys just fucking be by themselves. It's like really an annoying thing they have. Uh, Okay, number nine, Darby Allen. No, I think, I, in my opinion, Darby is kind of being booked. I mean, there, I might tinker with it a bit, but I, I also think Darby can only go so far, right? He's about 100. I think he's built at 170. I mean, we know wrestling. He's, Darby's like 150, 160 pounds, does some crazy shit. But when you put Darby in there with a bigger guy, Miro was a good example. It is, it's very hard to see that. So I, I always feel that Darby – Booked correctly adds a lot of value. And, you know, I, I know a lot of people are critical of Darby. Uh, but if you watched the other night, Rampage and the Battle of the Belts, there were people holding up. I'm here to see Darby Allen. So he's got his fans. And I, I think he's one of the top merchandise sellers in the company. So with that, I would book Darby very carefully. And I kind of feel that they have. 
I wouldn't book Darby uh, to the moon. If that's what this writer is inferring, well, I kind of think I, I he's will, been booked correctly. I will tell you what the article says is that the problem is that they have oversaturated us with Darby. That, I think, is, is a fair point. Uh, again, you're right. He sells merch. He gets over. However, when you have a guy whose basic gimmick, if you will, is that he's an undersized guy that comes in and has these spectacular moves, let's be honest, stunts that he does, okay, I don't know that you want him on every week or two, you know, like once a month where he comes out and he does the crazy shit, gets a pop, you know, uh, yeah. have him do a promo. Hey, I'm going to be on next week. So you're seeing his face, but I don't think we need to see a Darby Allen match every single week, whether it's Rampage, whether it's Dynamite, whether it's YouTube, whether it's whatever their channel, other channel is, you know, you need to pull back Darby Allen from being on every week. And, you know, there are guys, uh, that they have on every week that I think don't get overexposed. I think right now MJF is one of those. And maybe that's because MJF was off TV for three months. I don't know. But there are guys that can be on every week and guys that nah, I don't know that you need to have them on every week. And I think Darby Allen, that this article, I think is, uh, he's got a very valid point. So next at number eight in this top 10, and it's funny because I think we recently brought this guy up and lo and behold, they have him back last week on Dynamite. And of course he loses and that's Brian Cage. <laughs> yeah. And we were, we've been talking. So they, and it was funny because that literally occurred within like maybe even the same day. I forget what day we were recording, but yeah. So Brian Cage comes back. He's now part of the function, the, uh, the faction with, uh, so you know that this is painful. Prince Nana. I, uh, I don't understand Tony's infatuation with some guys in ROH, especially Prince Nana. Now, Prince Nana is a guy, Nana, going back a, a several years. I, I don't, maybe he was around the last couple of years. I don't know. I wasn't watching, but he was a guy that was around a few years back and he was one of those guys that it, it and I, this is not, it's the gimmick that I don't like. And I think as a manager, he probably would be fine, but this past week when they showed that match with Brian Cage and then Nana is trying to control the two Islanders gates of agony, I, I believe is what they're called. And then one of the guys was kind of yelling at Nana, just showing him as an ineffectual manager. So I don't get it. I would break Brian Cage away from all of this shit, make him into a monster heel. And look, it, why feed him to Wardlow? When you could feed anyone to Wardlow, why feed a guy who looks like Wardlow to Wardlow? It just didn't make any sense to me. And then somebody, and I don't, I think it was in our group, but I'm not quite positive. They said, why would you waste that match and give it away and bury this guy for free when you could have built this up for a pay-per-view? And I agree with or, that. Or if, you know, okay, if you don't want to do that, have Brian Cage cut a promo. I'm back in AEW. Everyone's talking about this big guy, Wardlow, like he's some kind of once-in-a-generation guy. I'm built exactly like him. I can do more than him, and I can beat him. And then, you know, like, hey, uh, Wardlow, how about a challenge for your belt? And the next week, Wardlow comes on does a promo. Who's this guy, Brian Cage? Who does he think he is? You want to match with me? Fine. Next week, you've built it up. Now, you know, you've had two weeks to build it up. And when the match finally happens, it's been a couple weeks has gone by. You've created an anticipation for this match. I mean, that's like booking 101. Why are you giving away not just 
putting it for a pay-per-view, if you don't want to put it on a pay-per-view, because God knows their pay-per-views are like Bobby Rogers FMW long with 20 stinking matches and 600 guys on the card, you know, you need to uh, cut some of the fat off the steak. Yeah, uh, separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, Barry, is there any other euphemisms I can use here? <laughs> You're doing good. Don't let me stop you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Every once in a while, you know. And, and don't even get me started. You know, we, we mentioned uh, uh, Stokely Hathaway before, and then you mentioned uh, Prince Nana, and we got Smart Mark Sterling. Uh, how many stinking managers do you need in this promotion? I mean, I get it. Get it. This isn't a territory where you've got ten guys employed and one manager. But come on, if you're going to have Somebody that's not your lead heel manager, if you're going to have the uh, the proverbial, uh, what, what do you call it, Jim Holiday, uh, that's what I'm going to call him, uh, you know, the, the the guy that's the manager of your mid-card guys or your, your opening match guys, at least have it be somebody that you can sit there and say, okay, this guy's not quite ready yet to be the main event guy, but I see a lot of potential in him. Now, am I missing something with Stokely Hathaway and Prince Nana and Smart Mark Sterling where eh, you give them a little time and these guys are going to be money in the bank? Well, I do think Stokely, I actually like Stokely Hathaway. I don't like the faction. Was it the firm? I, I don't even, yeah, something like that. Something like that. I don't like the faction he's in, but he can do an interview and, uh, and he's a bright guy and he comes across when he opens his mouth as being a bright guy. So I, I actually like him. Prince Nana, again, I, this is no judgment. I just don't see him as a fit into what they're trying to do. Smart Mark Sterling is he works, in my opinion, short term. He's not a guy that if we're still seeing him two years later, we're going to be like, fuck this guy again. But, you know, look, he's there's been a value to him. It's like like Dan Lambert. I remember the first the first month we saw Dan Lambert and you have personal experience with Dan Lambert. But I was kind of blown away. I'm like, this guy might be the best talker since Cornette. Like this guy's really good. But to that end. The last couple of months he was around, it was like, oh, boy, I don't want to hear Dan Lambert. Like, it had already worn, and he knew it. Apparently, that's why he just said, I'm done, because it's there was nothing new coming out of it. So I, I, well, I understand but, but, it. But, I understand what you're saying, though, and you're not far off. I mean, I agree with it. Well, but let's be fair. Whether we're talking about Dan or we're talking about Stokely or Mark or uh, or Prince Donna, is it that they don't necessarily have that it as that we've mentioned before, or is it the position they're being put in? You know, uh, it's only like, can you shine the, the proverbial turd, you know, to only to a certain extent, or is it their own, those four people, is it their own personal failings that are preventing them from getting uh, further up on the card or is it the position they're being put in? What do you think? It's a combination of all of it is I, I, again, I think Stokely Hathaway, he, he was really strong in the Federation before he, and, and certainly in Ring of Honor for years, but he was good. I don't know anything about Mark Sterling, but he's filled a role, right? He's the kind of guy that comes out. He's the manager that, that gets beat up, uh, a lot. He's, uh, not particularly funny or witty like a Bobby Heenan or maybe a Jim Cornette, but he's also a guy, I think he's a, he's actually a worker. He's a guy that's going to take a lot of bumps for you, where I don't think Hathaway and Nana are. I just, when I see Prince Nana, and I definitely feel like I'm picking on him, he comes across as uh, an old-school cartoonish character, an old-school cartoonish manager. And I just, I don't think at this stage of the game, 
there's there's a need for that. Maybe Tony Khan's thinking, again, I have no idea, is that he's going to bring that uh, ROH nostalgia vibe. People that loved ROH five, ten years ago. Oh, my God, look, now they got Nana. I should start watching. I don't know if that'll happen either, but that's what well, I'm Well, and, you know, going back to what you're talking about uh, with uh, Mark Sterling, you know, one of the things, if Mark Sterling is their guy that uh, is going to be the manager that takes bumps, if he's going to be the manager that gets beat up occasionally, you know, there has to be the other end of the equation where he gets his revenge. You know, if he goes out there every week and gets his ass kicked, well, what does he mean? Who cares? But if after getting his ass kicked, the next week he comes out, uh, he throws powder at somebody, okay, or does something where, uh, you know, uh, the, the baby face that he's talking shit to uh, gets his ass kicked. Which leads to the following week where the baby face gets its revenge. Like, this is not difficult shit. Why is this beyond the grasp? I, I shouldn't put all this on Tony Khan. Why isn't there someone else going, uh, listen, uh, we've had Mark get his ass kicked six weeks in a row. Shouldn't he be getting his revenge on somebody at some point? Right. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't know. So number seven, as we move on in the list of top 10, uh, guys that are not being booked correctly by Tony Khan. Or in this case, uh, part of the crew, I will say, because it's a lady. Barry, I know you're a big fan of Ruby Soho. Yeah, I don't know if big fan is either. I, I don't know if I'm even a fan any longer. I liked her when she first came in. I felt that she definitely brought something to her. Has she been booked incorrectly? Yes, she has. And the reason I say that she was brought in, Ruby is that she's in the Chris Statlander role. Actually, I think both are injured, too. So they legitimately are very similar in that they always get to the wedding, right? They're always the bridesmaid, never the bride, that type of deal. And that's kind of what you did with Ruby. Ruby's going to be challenging for Britt Baker's title. Ruby's going to be challenging for Jade Cargill's title. Ruby's going to be doing this. And then Ruby always comes up short. And that is, that's the Chris Statlander thing as well. Give Chris Statlander a great, and I'm a huge fan of Chris Statlander, actually. I actually think she's ready to be making some money, keeps getting injured, which really, really hurts the case. But same token, let's give Chris Statlander a lot of big matches. They, She fought Britt Baker numerous times. She fought Jade Cargill, and she comes up short every single time. This is it. You know, if if I tell you I'm, I'm going to get out there and win the title five times, and each time I come up short, why are you supposed to give a shit any longer, you know? And I kind of feel that's where I'm at with Ruby Soho. I don't care if I see her wrestle anymore because nothing's going to come of it. So, yeah. And at this point, uh, is it not fair to say, based on some stuff I've heard, uh, there's a certain amount of drama that goes on backstage involving her. Ruby Soho? Yes. Oh, I did. Is that true? I don't read the observation. No, no. I, I, I mean... It, wasn't it Ruby Soho that someone claimed was unsafe in one of her moves and uh, may have injured her? Or I, if I'm wrong, I'm, maybe I'm thinking of somebody else, but I could have sworn that uh, she did some sort of move where somebody got injured and they blamed her. And she said, oh, it's not my fault. Uh, the big must Am I missing the boat there or am I? Uh- I don't honestly, I don't know. I just I know that she has been out, I believe, twice with injuries in the time that she's been in AEW. So she got a broken it- nose now, I think. Yeah, and let's give Britt Baker a lot of credit. Britt Baker 
continually gets injured. And I think her nose has been broken multiple times and she still wrestles through and then she still cuts the best promos. And what I like about Britt Baker, and I realize there's no way she's on your list is that whatever, whatever's been thrown her way to maybe take her down a peg as they attempt to push Thunder Rosa, Tony Storm, whoever maybe, else. Maybe it's maybe it's Thunder Rosa that is the one that did that. I, that I believe because I yeah. yeah. If that's the case, then I I apologize. I was incorrect about Ruby Soho. Then I think there's a and there's a lot going Thunder Rosa. There's a story. So I don't know what the deal is with uh, Thunder Rosa currently. I know that there were a lot of stories about her in AEW. Uh, she wasn't injured, but the back injury was legit. Other sources were claiming that uh, there's a lot of heat on her for being unsafe, etc. Ah, her, yes. Her husband, I, I knew there was somebody, so I apologize. Yeah, it, it's her. But her husband put out a tweet or a message a couple of weeks ago. Apparently, and I didn't know Thunder Rosa. I, I guess. San Antonio, I think, somewhere in Texas, and her husband was an independent or still is independent wrestling promoter and put out a couple of tweets that I guess people were concerned for his personal safety. I guess the tweets were alluding that he could possibly harm himself, and I believe he came back and clarified it and said, what I'm really trying to say is that I'm done helping other people. So I don't it just there always appears to be drama with Thunder Rosa that takes place either in AEW or somewhere else. And I was a big fan. And I think that's kind of waned with all the drama shit. So uh, with that, getting back Ruby Soho, uh, I don't think she's booked incorrectly. I think she's probably at this stage exactly where she should be. Number six, Miro. Yeah, well, yeah, God, Lord knows Miro should have been pushed to the moon right not in uh, not miro fuck this is so infuriating i'm sitting here now i'm rubbing my temples jeff as we're fucking talking i love aew it is the only wrestling that on wednesdays i wake up and i've got a routine i'm going out i'm getting panda express for dinner we, we can talk about that on another time jeff because i don't Mrs. know why you're like not it. a huge panda express fan most well, most people shouldn't be. It's a bunch of garbage, but for some reason I'm fucking addicted to it. So I I can't figure it out. But I have a routine, and then I get really excited for AEW. And I got to tell you, Miro is one of those guys that I'm completely just going. Why would you do this? Why do you bring Miro in to AEW? Big star in the Federation and actually was popular despite horrible booking there as well. And then pair him up with Kip fucking Sabian. And when I said to you, you said to me, you go, who's the guy with the box on his head? And I'm like, oh, it's Kip Sabian. And you were like, and, and who's Kip Sabian? <laughs> and to your point, that's exactly right. Because even now, this whole Kip Sabian in a box thing has been completely pushed aside and now he's just basically the guy walking Penelope Ford to the ring because they're married in real life. So Miro booked correctly should have been brought in. If not given the world title should have destroyed fucking people and left everyone laying and put into main events right off the bat. And that didn't happen. And I love AEW, but there are inherently a shitload of mistakes that have been made and that are currently being made. And I can't make excuses for those. Well, and, and let me just say before I give my thoughts uh, on Miro, uh, there's a lot about AEW that I like, 
uh, unlike <clears throat> certain people, I do not completely shit all over the pro, you know, the, the, the whole promotion uh, and everything that Tony Khan does. There are things that I really like about it. However, I'm also willing to say there are some, uh, some things there that just have you go, what the fuck are they thinking? And again, this brings back a couple weeks ago. I talked about how Tony Khan needs to have the ability to have people that are responsible, that don't have a fucking agenda. Yep. Uh, that can tell him this is not a good idea or here's something. And also with a promotion that's a national promotion, you know, I was thinking about this. You need to have somebody that has a notebook and put every person on the roster. And, okay, uh, Darby Allen, he was on last week. We can uh, skip this week, okay? Uh, but, oh, here's uh, Miro. Miro hasn't been on in three fucking weeks. Uh, okay, uh, Wednesday night, Miro takes on so-and-so. Just so you get his face on fucking TV. And, you know, let me put this out there. I still am a fan of the character of Chris Jericho, okay? His wrestling, obviously, is not the same as it, w- it was. I mean, the guy's 50-plus years fucking old, okay? Chris Jericho does not need to be on TV every single fucking week, okay? And I say that, I love Chris Jericho's character. I like the, his group, okay? Uh, Sammy Guevara, somebody needs to fucking take him out behind a woodshed, maybe, and give him a, a little come-Jesus moment. But he's got talent, but he's also got a lot of drama that he brings with him, okay? And I, I think Sammy is going to piss off the wrong guy at some point and really get his ass handed to him something fierce. Uh, but there are things about the promotion I really like. Th- there needs to be somebody that's telling Tony Khan, we've got people here that haven't been on the main show in a long time, and here this guy has been on seven straight fucking weeks. Maybe we need to give him a week or two away, okay? Now, obviously, if it's, the, you know, uh, you got a, a pay-per-view coming up on uh, Saturday or whatever, well, then maybe you'll maybe you go and have him on two weeks in a row. But there's no reason to have these guys on seven straight weeks when you've got other guys like Miro that haven't been on except like there was one little vignette, I think, where he kind of showed his face and went, yes. You know, it's like, what are you doing? This is a guy that was getting over. I love his promos where he's talking to God. I think, you know, that that is incredible stuff. I don't know who came up with that, but it's a really interesting idea. He's a really good worker. He's a great monster heel. He can do so many things. But if you don't use them, guess what? He doesn't get a chance to use them. So uh, next, at number five, Barry, private party. So I'm a private party fan, and uh, I have been. I, I think that they do. Yes, they're, in, they're booked incorrectly to answer that. They deserve a much bigger push than they've gotten. And I think the difference, I think that they're better than the acclaimed. I think the acclaimed gets over, certainly on charisma, and I think, I think, and we're going to see this over the next couple of months. The acclaimed, it's not quite the same when the bell rings. There, the rap to the ring is great. Scissor me, daddy ass, and all that stuff is, uh, it, it works with the crowd. Crowd is fucking losing their mind. They might just be the most popular tag team, like they claim out there. But when the match starts, they're, they're not, they're not elite workers. 
at this stage. I think at some point they're going to get there. I think Bowen's actually is decent. I think Caster's still got a little bit of work. They're also young guys, right? They're going to get there. Private party to me, and I know that a lot of people will view them as spot monkeys, a term that I hate, but uh, they'll view them that way. But they do some really inventive shit. And it's interesting to see there's a great correlation between private party and Dante Martin. And Dante Martin was somebody, everyone in the company was drooling over Dante Martin and he was getting his push, but Dante Martin has uh, zero charisma or personality and they definitely have curtailed that push dramatically, right? Like he's like on dark now in tag matches and shit. So I don't know where they're going to go. I would do something. I, be, I believe more. Uh, four or five months ago, I mentioned sending Dante Martin to Japan. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, great ideas that they could have used that uh, apparently they didn't. That's all he's – look at fucking Wheeler Yuta. Exactly. Wheeler Yuta should be the prototype for every young wrestler, including Dante Martin, because there is a guy that has just changed the direction of his career. You could say he was booked that way, but whatever. He embraced it, and uh, I'd have to think of what he's doing. A lot of it is is him. So he's taken the ball and he's run with it. Private party, absolutely. Dante Martin, six months in Japan, three months in Mexico, main event guy when he gets back. And, you know, uh, when you were talking about uh, the acclaimed, you know, one of the things that uh, I, I mentioned, uh, you know, we were talking about, uh, or I should, I should say you uh, said, uh, about how the scissor me daddy thing, you know, one of the things Meltzer uh, said recently in the Observer that I think is a very valid point is, it's not something that they pushed. It got over generically yes. to where it's be- – and those are the things that when something gets over on its own yep. accord as opposed to being forced down the, the audience's throat, gets over so much better. And if you're accurate and, you know, like uh, once the bell rings, they're not as good as they are on the lead up and the rap and all that kind of stuff. Because trust me, when, you know, when Caster gets – when I see them coming to the ring and Caster grabs the mic, I, I'm listening. Me too. Want, you know, because he always has funny shit to say. It's really, it was kind of cool that he mentioned his dad, uh, last week. Uh, you know, his dad played for the Jets and for the Redskins and stuff like that. His dad was a fucking hell of a tight end back in the day. Uh, Do you want to have fun, Jeff? What's when that? you get a chance, go to YouTube and put in the acclaimed rap. Uh, they have a compilation of all their raps to the ring. Oh, it's fucking great. <laughs> it's great. But, uh, private party, Maybe better than them in the ring, but if they are generically or forcibly uh, not getting over, you know, with, with a push, if they're not getting over and like, you know, it was it uh, they had uh, where Matt Hardy was their manager and, you know, then it was somebody else. And now Matt Hardy's like, hell, you know, if you want, if you want me to come back and manage you, I made a mistake before. Uh, I, I got to be honest with you. I hate to say this because I'm sure he's a great guy. I don't understand them having Matt Hardy on TV at this point uh, because at this he's stage, uh, I agree. Yeah. Uh, physically he just he's a mess. He he looks horrible, uh, you know. And God bless him, he did 20 plus years of taking hellacious bumps, and you know, uh, it, now that his brother is gone uh, because of his own uh, doings, uh, you know. Why are they using this guy? Now, if you want to put him in the AEW training center to help guys, uh, you know, uh, with their moves and, uh, you know, doing all that kind of stuff, I completely get that. But you don't need to have him out there in front of the camera, especially working in the ring. 
So on to the next one. Number four, Adam Cole. Who interesting. Now we haven't seen Adam Cole in, I would say a month or two. I believe there's an injury, but I don't know. Was it a concussion that he had that, uh, like at a pay-per-view, he got concussed and apparently it was pretty significant. That would make sense. That's probably because, right, that's why we haven't seen him now in a bit, and we probably won't see him for a while. And Bobby Fish is gone. I believe he's an impact now. He's I heard got, that, he, that he's uh, doing an MMA fight. I heard he was MMA or boxing? Yeah, something like that. Something. Yeah. And he's like 45 years old. I know he's uh, he's in great shape, and he's been training like 20, 30 years, something like that. Adam Cole's a tough one. Again, his, his faction is broken up, which leads me to believe there's more to this story there because I would not have split up Adam Cole and Red Dragon for anything. I think they hadn't even touched the surface. So them letting Bobby Fish get away, I think, is a bigger story, and maybe that relates to Adam Cole's health. Maybe Adam Cole's not coming well, back for months. And also, didn't Kyle O'Reilly need some sort of surgery, like where he's going to be out a pretty significant amount of time? So, I mean, that that could very well explain why they broke the group up. Yeah. Because I think initially they were going to do something with uh, those guys, and uh, they were going to break off between uh, Omega and the Bucks and have them faced off with those guys. Uh, you know, but uh, I think before he got injured, I don't think he was uh, incorrectly booked at all. If anything, he was overbooked because he was – just every single week, it seemed like Adam Cole, and I liked the the guy, I liked his character, but it was just like, come on already. Like, here's another segment with Adam Cole, Bay Bay. So, number three, Hikaru, Hikaru Shida. I'm butchering that name. I don't know. I mean, look, Hikaru Shida, I, she was the Sorry. champion at one point, too, right? Yeah. And she, again, yeah. I, I don't I don't know if this is like one of those deals with Omega and, uh, and Riho. And all these, uh, you know, is Sheeta like that fucking great uh, of a, a worker and a wrestler that, you know, they need to, uh, you know, do more with her? I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, I, I think she is. I think she's a good worker. She's doing uh, everything right. Uh, she's solid. What else are you going to do with her? You're going to have her work with Tony Storm at this point. You know, again, we, I, I think when you look at wrestling, in, and I don't, I don't know if Tony Khan's doing this. I think there are so many sides to look at it, and this is where somebody needs to be in charge, but also step back and look at all the information. There, there's so many factors in wrestling. Are we looking at great matches? You know, but if I was running a business, Great matches. I hate to say it too, because but the the ratings show it, and the fact great wrestling doesn't always matter, right? Like it just doesn't matter. It's it's gimmicks and it's other shit, and it was the same reason that you know a lot of guys that I would have never watched were pushed to death in the WWE because they were delivering ratings or they were selling merchandise, and that's it. So I look at Hikaru Shida. Is she going to have four, three, and four star matches all the time? Absolutely, she probably is. Is she going to increase ratings and sell a ton of merch? I would bet against that happening. So, well, I understand. That's, that's the exact same argument. You know, we just discussed the uh, the acclaim versus private party. Yeah. You know, uh, private party might have better matches than the acclaim, but who's moving the merch? Who's getting the that's ratings it. spike because they do a great rap when they walk to the ring? Yeah. Number two. Listen. Oh, <laughs> 
Listen, we should start. We should open the show with that. We should do. Listen. We should totally steal the acclaims gimmick so we can create some heat. I love yeah, it. We go. We can do a rap. We're doing a. I'll make you a deal, and let's say this on air. You do the first rap, and then I'll come back the next week and do a rap. All right. Wait till the next episode, folks. You. Ain't oh boy. Number two. Wow. Well, yeah. Me rapping. Uh, yeah. I'll do like Sugar Hill Gang. But if we bop me bop, we will exactly we do. We do. We do. Love you. We can do that. See, now we can I'm do have that. that fucking song in my head. Thanks a lot, Barry. Sorry. So number two, here's one I absolutely agree with. It's not like they haven't tried with this guy, okay? And you see this guy, and I just see a guy that, as a monster heel, would absolutely be money in the bank, but for whatever reason, and he's a good promo, great look, great wrestling talent, but for whatever reason, he just hasn't panned out as the big star that it looks like he should be. Number two, Lance Archer. I knew you were going to say that when you started. I don't think so, and I I say this. (sighs) For whatever reason, Lance Archer... Never fully, I've never seen him ever fully get over in the U.S. He got over in, uh, Impact. I don't know if he was even Lance Archer at that point. He might have been under another name, but he was getting over. But I think a lot of it had to do with that the people that attended the tapings would all go to Miller's Ale House after the tapings. And he would, he and Eric Young were always there and supposedly Lance Archer, just a great guy. People would always say he's just a great guy. I just don't I, – I know that they've pushed him as a killer heel, but he seems one-dimensional. Maybe maybe it was bad booking. Maybe maybe there were gaps that were exposed way too early. Look at the genius, and I'll bring this up, Paul Heyman's booking. When Paul Heyman brought in that guy, 911, yes. I don't think the guy could do a fucking thing other than a power bomb or a choke slam, right? Like that was it. And Paul Heyman, to his – I think it was the choke slam, right? Yep. Paul Heyman would, that's all he would let him do. He'd walk to the ring, he would do it, and he was done. He would step over the rope. Yes, step over the rope. And how smart was that? Because it, it helped facilitate that illusion that this guy was a monster. Lance Archer at this point is jobbed out. And uh, granted, it may be the booking. I just don't, other than what his work in Japan, I've never seen him get over. Well, and think about it. Uh, Paul Heyman had everyone convinced that Taz was this shooter who could take out every guy in UFC. Yep. Uh, I mean, it was absolute genius booking that, that you know, a guy that uh, – I'm not saying that, uh, that Taz didn't have certain uh, amateur or MMA credentials, but, you know, let's be honest. It's not like this guy was uh, yeah, one of the Gracies, because uh, I'm going back to when uh, Taz was actually a, a big deal in uh, ECW. He wasn't like that kind of level. Uh, he wasn't even a Dan Severin or, or something like that. I'm not, it sound like I'm poo-pooing Dan Severin. I'm not, but, uh, yeah, that's actually, uh, Barry, I'll give you credit. That's a really good booking idea of what they should have done with Lance Archer. Just have him go in, uh, and you know, exactly what they did with Wardlow. Just have him go out there and kill people, you know, and, and all of a sudden now, not that Wardlow is not developing to a certain extent, but you know, when you have now Wardlow goes out there and works 10 or 15 minute matches. And all of a sudden, using the old JYD thing with Bill Watts, what he told his bookers, don't show me what he can't do. Show me what he can do. And I think 
some of the mystique around Wardlow has started to diminish because now they're booking him in these 10 to 15 minute matches. And if you're going to do a 10 to 15 minute match with a guy, make it on a pay-per-view. Don't put it on a, you know, uh, even if it is against Brian Cage or, or somebody like that, it's just uh, defeating it. And I think Lance Archer, I, I don't think Lance Archer could have necessarily been the face of the company, but they certainly could have done a lot more with them. Now we get to number one on right. the uh, on the list here, Barry. So before I give you number one, who do you think it is? I, I'm going to think for a second when you when you were describing Lance Archer last time. Halfway through, I was like, it'll be Lance Archer. Or I, I, I'm going to I'm going to sit here and think for a second while I'm doing that, Jeff. I'm going to throw something at you. Who has been? Who's been overbooked? And when I say that, who have we seen? And you mentioned Chris Jericho. Who, I mean, and to me, Sammy Guevara would be number one at this point, as far as we're just, you know, we're seeing way too much of him. Who has not been booked correctly in AEW? Miro, I think, would have been my top guess. If not, uh, Brian Danielson, actually. Well, uh, you know, I, I can't say Sammy Guevara because Sammy Guevara, for a while, I was a huge advocate of yeah. uh, just for his in-ring work. Uh, if he's really an asshole outside the ring, uh, you know, like I said, eventually that's going to come back and bite him in the ass and he's going to get his ass handed to him by somebody. Um, hmm. Who are they not using the way they could? You know, it's funny. They... Uh, they have all those guys in uh, Jericho. I, I love what they're doing, the way they're pushing Daniel Garcia. Again, yep. there are things that they do in this company that, you know, that are really, really good. Wheeler Yudo, uh, uh, or Yuda, uh, Daniel Garcia, they're pushing, they're, they're pushing these guys just perfectly. I don't know if that's Tony Khan doing it. And if it is, he should get the credit. But if it's somebody else doing it, we, you know, we should give them the credit for it too. Uh, uh, Jake, uh, what do you call Hager? Yeah. He's another guy. Legit skills as a wrestler, uh, and as a badass. And he kind of, he kind of is endearing in a way as sort of the big lunkhead that is the, uh, the muscle of the group, you know? Uh, I wonder if there's not more they could be doing with him, you know? There absolutely is, and I would 100% agree. I, but I also think at this stage, unless they do something and you're going to have to do a reinvention, Jake Hager, and I don't know what his win-loss record is, and of course that win-loss record to me is always really funny because when you look at guys like, and I think Jake Hager is probably a good example, maybe even private parties even better, their win-loss record is actually decent. What it doesn't break down is that all those wins usually occur on AEW Dark, like the YouTube show, and the losses all occur on the big shows, which would be Dynamite and Rampage. So I find that kind of misleading, but Jake Hager has basically been a job machine the last three years, and he's capable of a lot more. The guy looks like a million bucks, too. Yeah, if if there's a six-man tag and it's Jericho, Sammy, and Jake, and they're doing the, the job, you know which one of those three is doing the job. Let's just yep. Say that. Uh, and that's kind of unfortunate. So, uh, hello, Ozzy. Nice. Ozzy, very excited. So, uh, who's number one? Maybe, maybe Ozzy has an opinion also. Ozzy, who, who's, who, <laughs> Ozzy, who are they not booking correctly in AEW? You know who it is. 
Say it. Say Chris Statlander. Just say it. That, that's who I would have gone with. I think, again, the caveat is I think she's been injured more than not in her time in AEW. That's a shame. Uh, first of all, uh, your answer is ah, incorrect. All right. According to this article, and you give, me, give me your thoughts, the number one person being booked incorrectly by AEW, Andrade El Idolo. Well, so we talked about this, and I think we talked about this either last week or the week before, and I was a hundred percent on board. Here's the deal. I don't know if you're, do you, have you ever seen Andrade in a great match, Jeff? Mm, no. And, and let me tell you the fault, the fault therein lies in AEW because Andrade, when he was in NXT, was unbelievable. He was just, they let him go. He was great. Uh, he was having, he had a match with Gargano that I'm just telling you was through the roof, makes it up to the main stage. And of course they botched that. And he's been, you know, he's been, I don't want to say, uh, he's mid card at best in AEW. And then you're pairing him with guys that continually do the job. He buys the Hardy family organization, which are guys like Butcher and Blade, who I think are good for what they are. But they're used to put people over the same as private party. And, uh, you know, again, so you're putting Andrade with a bunch of guys that are known for doing jobs. Of yeah. course, he's not being booked correctly. So we may not have to worry about that. I guess the, the thought process was Andrade was told if, uh, he did anything to Sammy at, uh, dynamite last week that he would be suspended, et cetera. And apparently he walked in, put his hand on Sammy's shoulder and I guess punched him right away. <laughs> like there was not even a thought. And of course, a lot of people have come out and speculated. And this may be internet speculation, which means absolutely nothing as we've learned that he did that so he would get fired and that he could go back to the Federation because he was a Triple H disciple. And with Vince gone, Triple H in charge, seems like it makes a lot of sense. I would say he's booked incorrectly, but I don't think that's going to change. Uh, well, and let, let's be honest. Uh, you know, you, you have to wonder. Uh, think about who he's married to. Think about who uh, his father-in-law is. Yes. Think about where his loyalties lie. Uh, whether he did that to uh, so he could head back to the Federation, I don't know. It just seems like. For what you get with this guy, for the aggravation that comes with him, because, you know, like, Tony has to wonder, can I really trust this guy? Can I trust a guy whose father-in-law is Rick fucking Flair, who, of course, is Triple H's guy? Can I trust a guy whose wife works for the Federation and isn't going anywhere? Yeah, and, I mean, honestly, they should have thought about that before they brought him in. You know, I mean, I think that's absolutely fair to, to wonder. But, eh, you know, I, I just uh, I think these are all things that should have been thought about, should have been considered uh, whether they were or not. You know, it's it's become a, a, an issue now. It's become a problem now. And I think uh, I think Barry's right. I think this guy is uh, is out the door. So, Barry, I know that you are not a super huge fan of MLB Major League Baseball. But Lou, join us here as we recently have gotten past the first round of the Major League Baseball playoffs, uh, something that certainly has affected <clears throat> certain members of the brothership. So, Lou, let's talk about the first round. We have Cleveland over the Tampa Bay Rays. 
Uh, I'm sure a Jerry Briscoe, very upset about that. I know he's a big Rays fan. Uh, Seattle beating the Blue Jays from Toronto. Uh, Barry, our friend Jeff Zinger, not posting anything about the Blue Jays defeat. Uh, and his fuck yes, as Jeff calls him, uh, not chiming in on that. Philadelphia, our boy Cholminski, Jamie Ward, very happy that the Phillies defeated the <clears throat> St. Louis Cardinals. Sorry, Jim and Mona. Uh, and then, oh, lastly, the San Diego Padres went in and defeated the New York Mets, who apparently have the greatest pitching staff in the history of Major League Baseball. However, they were defeated. So now, Lou, just let me know, out of these first-round uh, uh, teams that have lost in the first round, we're talking mm-hmm. the Rays, the Blue Jays, the Cardinals, and the Mets. Who to you is the biggest surprise? Uh, losing, I mean. Oh, yeah. Um, I, for me, I think it might be the Blue Jays, especially in the manner in that, uh, in that deciding game where they were up over the Mariners eight to one and the Mariners clawed their way back and, and won the game 10 to nine. Just tore the heart out of, uh, the Blue Jays. And, uh, Lou, I can tell you, you'll be getting a very terse email from Jeff Zinger for even mentioning that horrifying loss. So now we've got Cleveland versus the Yankees in the next round. Seattle versus the, uh, versus the Houston Astros. Phillies versus the Atlanta Braves and San Diego versus the LA Dodgers. Tell me of those four matchups, which team that is considered an underdog do you see as having the best chance to pull the upset? It's interesting. The Cleveland Guardians with the the youngest roster in MLB, they're always in contention in the AL, AL Central year to year because, you know, Tito Francona is just that kind of manager. But they've really, really poured it on in the in the late part of the season and also uh, in the wild card round. So, I mean, the Yankees, they are the, you know, juggernaut they've always been with uh, Aaron 62 home runs judge. But... Well, they've also got these, what is it, $700 million budget? I don't know. Right. Some some astronomically high payroll, whereas the Guardians are, you know, kind of a lunch pail, uh, hard hat team. But, um, yeah, I don't know. The Guardians, if they catch the, the Yankees napping, that, that would be a definite prototypical underdog story. So uh, also, uh, before we move on here, because I know Barry is a huge, huge baseball fan. <clears throat> Wake up, Barry. Uh, do Barry's Philadelphians, the Phillies, have a chance against the Bravos from Atlanta? That's the question. Because the Phillies. That's why I ask it. Because I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Phillies have had a hell of a year. They jettisoned uh, Joe Girardi as their manager. Uh, pretty early on. New manager just got a two-year contract as today, I believe. Two yeah. hours ago, yes. Wow. So they're, yeah, it is, that's an interesting case too. And they, they were able to send Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina off to, uh, Adam Wainwright too. Wainwright was retiring too. Okay. Yeah. So, it, oh, that was a shame as a Cubs fan. I can say, uh, 
Wow, what a shame. I'm sorry, I'm being spiteful now. I know. <laughs> I know. But they'll still have Arnato and Goldschmidt, so I'm not I'm not hurting too bad for them. Um Phillies and the Braves. It's tough. The Braves are the defending kings. And to be you know, a king, you have to kill a king. That's what I've heard, Lou. So are right. you still going with the Dodgers uh, ultimately as the World Series champ? Is that your choice? I think you told me that a while ago. Yeah, it's the Padres are good. They they're very good. Bob Melvin, from you know seeing his numerous years with the A's, knows what to do, and they got you know good guys, good young guys like Juan Soto in that trade. It'll be, I think it'll be a dog fight, but I I think the Dodgers are too tough in that one. I yeah, I can see the Dodgers certainly going to the end. And, uh, and getting the, the title, but it's, uh, it's an interesting mix of teams now that we're in the division, division series round. And we will revisit this issue with baseball guru, sweet Lou Kippelman, when next we get to the next round of the major league baseball playoffs. I'm sure those of you in Germany and the UK have found this particular brand of conversation extremely fascinating don't worry we're going to be looking at the bundesliga and the uh, english premier league at some point i'm sure right barry absolutely absolutely too and i should say phillies this town has been on fire uh phillies winning two straight getting ready to face the braves eagles five and oh for the first time i believe in 18 years I am supporting both teams and also taking full credit for the success currently. You are nothing if not an athletic supporter. <laughs> well, that's what they say. Absolutely. However, don't worry. The rest of us, we all know that the Philadelphia Flyers season is starting recently also. <laughs> Barry, another jam packed up. This is two episodes in a row. We've given like extended versions of the old podcast, my friend. We have. It's, uh, and this was so a lot of week, fun. Next week, a 30 minute episode. I don't. And Jeff, you may be right. It may only be 30 minutes uh, because, as we know, I have got to do some traveling for work. And, Jeff, I'm excited whenever I have to go somewhere and if it's work-related. So it's not a pleasure trip, though I would do this on a, a pleasurable trip as well. I always look, where am I going to go? Where, you know, where can I eat? What can I do? And uh, when I saw that I was going to be in Troy, Michigan, I immediately – Oh, I'm sorry. It's not Little Caesars, and it's it's Jeff. It's a place that uh, I think you may have mixed feelings about, but it's Culver's. There is a Culver's within six miles of where I'm staying, and I've been assured that this is a great area. It is a safe area, and if I was going to make a walk, no problem. So I am determined. I'm walking to Culver's. Well, Barry is just alluding to the fact that, uh, let's just say on the last visit to Culver's uh, last week, uh, unfortunate and unpleasant experience, second time that I've had an unpleasant experience post-Culver's visit. That's all I'm going to say. On that note, and if you really want to know when we get to Lutz, you can ask me and I'll tell you what the fuck happened. Uh, it did not involve a Barry Rose shitting on the lawn uh, type of activity, so I will tell you that. Uh, I will remind you that Breaking Kayfabe about and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. They care about us so much. Lou Kippelman on the production duties. Barry Rose, the co-host. I am your host, Jeff Bowdrin. And I will say, good night, guys. I'll see you.